parable that opens Matthew chapter 20 is a, is a continuation of Jesus' words in, in uh, chapter 19. Chapters were, were not part of the original text of Scripture. They were uh, established by a French printer named Robert Estienne. Um, uh, a little while after the invention of the printing press, so many Bibles were going out that people needed to be able to find a reference. And so it began just with chapters, and then it was another 100 or 150 years before somebody said, let's do verses. And uh, there are times that, that the chapter breaks just don't make sense. Uh, they just don't make sense. So we have to learn to use those as navigational aids and nothing else. Um, uh, and that, that's especially true with verse breaks. Uh, ideally, verse breaks would be at a sentence in the original text and not in the middle. Um, more trouble has been caused in the church, I think, by misquoting a verse by just quoting one part of it than anything else. But Matthew writes here, Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out, out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they supposed that they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. Now when they received it, they were grumbling at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Just in, in terms of preliminary matters, it just helps to kind of get on the same page with, with things. So regarding parables, parables are made up stories from real-life situations that illustrate a spiritual truth. They are not allegories where we can take the parable and break it down and, into its myriad parts and assign meaning to every one of those parts. They don't function that way. Um, Jesus drew the parables he told from real-life situations. A woman took a measure of yeast and kneaded it into dough. That's what people did. There are times that Jesus used what seems to be exaggeration 
A man planted a field of wheat, and his enemy came at night and sowed tares among the wheat. But as odd and as unusual as that would be, we know that there are people in this world who are vindictive enough to go out of their way to try and ruin something for somebody else. So it's not completely out of line. Jesus never told a parable about being able to fly and holding your breath indefinitely so that you could go live on the moon. They were all things that people could relate to. And because of that, there, there are elements within the parables that it just helps us to understand culturally. Um, one of the elements that's really a key to this parable is timekeeping. Mechanical clocks were invented around 1300 in the, the 13th or 14th century. Minute hands were not added until 1680, is my understanding. So prior to this, timekeeping was, was fairly uneven. And what most people had was the position of the sun. I'm not now, the, the Romans had four nighttime watches, and I, I really don't know how they determined when one watch began and the other watch ended. I don't know. But during the day, you simply followed the sun. So the, the, the Hebrews used a 12-hour day. They assumed there's 12 hours of daylight. There's 12 hours of nighttime. Um, there's not 12 hours of daylight if you go 60 minutes to an hour. But there are 12 hours of daylight if you do it like, like they did. So just because I like doing this kind of thing, today there will be 9 hours and 28 minutes of daylight. Divide that into 12, and each hour is 47 minutes and 20 seconds long. June 21st, there's the most amount of daylight in the year. It's not the longest day of the year. You hear people say that. No, there's still 24 hours. But there's the most daylight. There will be 15 hours and 14 minutes of daylight. So if you divide that out by 12, you get a 76-minute hour, which maybe is why summer just seems to drag. Even though we do 60-minute hours, it just takes forever to get to dark. Well, at, th at that time, it would have been based on the position of the sun. So you begin at zero at dawn for the Hebrews, and in Israel, noon was the sixth hour. When the sun is overhead, it's the sixth hour. What's the third hour? Well, that's when the sun is 45 degrees in the east. The ninth hour is when the sun is 45 degrees in the west. And most of them didn't go too much beyond that. The eleventh hour would have been... Uh, the, the, just the last bit before the sun begins to hit the horizon. Photographers would call the 11th hour the golden hour. The golden hour is the hour after dawn and the hour before dusk when there's so much, uh, there's so much atmosphere the sun is, is coming through that it's got a very warm, yellowish feel to it rather than just a bright vintage blue. So... That's what we see this, this, in this parable, is this story about time and laborers. There's a chain that runs all the way through, and it's the phrase for the kingdom of heaven is like. It's part of what clues us into the fact that this is a parable. But it also sets the foundation for it. That phrase is not a thread that runs through the whole parable. It's a steel chain that links everything together that we're never really allowed to forget. And then, of course, Jesus wraps it with verse 30 of chapter 19 and verse 16 of chapter 20. The first will be last and the last will be first. So let, let's understand the parable. 
a man with a vineyard is in need of day laborers, probably because of the harvest. So he goes to the marketplace just after sunrise, very early in the morning, to hire workers. There are workers there waiting. If they're there that early, they're presenting themselves well, they're eager, they're motivated, they're diligent. And they make a really good deal for themselves. They agree to a denarius for the day. Now, many study Bibles, if you have a study Bible, it might say a denarius was a day's wage. And that was true. A denarius was a day's wage for a skilled worker. An unskilled worker, like somebody harvesting grapes, there's not a huge amount of skill there. It's mainly strength and endurance. An unskilled worker would receive about two-thirds of a denarius for the day. Roman soldiers at the entry level were paid two-thirds of a denarius for the day because it's not skilled labor we're after. It's, it's body mass and endurance. So these men negotiate a, a good wage for the day, and he sends them off, and they begin to work. Around the third hour, mid-morning, uh, the landowner goes back to the marketplace. He sees a, a group of men standing around idle, and he says, you go into the vineyard as well. Whatever is right, I will give you. So there's no negotiated wage here. He promises to give them what is right. That word would mean just or righteous. Uh, fair might be okay, but it really has to do with, with what is proper. That means that they're having to trust him as he interprets what is proper. But they go off to work. And then the same thing happens at the sixth and the ninth hour. Now, at, up to this point, there's nothing surprising here. There's nothing that's outlandish. People hired day, day laborers to work on their places. Sometimes you'd, you'd get going through the day and you'd realize, I need some more men, and you'd go get some more men. It gets unusual in verse 6. He goes back to the marketplace at, at the eleventh hour, and found others standing around. He says to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? So again, we don't want to speculate too much about what's going on, but what we, what we can't say is that they just got up late, they were up late drinking and talking with their friends, and they slept in, and then they finally got to the marketplace about 3 or 4 o'clock, and they're just killing time so their wives don't nag them so that they can go home and say, yeah, I went to the marketplace. and They've been there all day. They've been there all day. Jesus specifically gives us that information. So it's okay to wonder why have they been there all day. Nobody hired them. It could, could have been because there's not enough work. You hire the laborers that you need. You don't hire if you don't need. It could also have been that they've been there all day because this is really not work that would suit them. Maybe they were a little bit older. And they couldn't stand a whole day out in the field of strenuous work. Maybe they're dealing with some physical disability or mental disability that just makes them less suitable for a full day's work. At this point, a, uh, a landowner who simply had profits on his mind would have passed them by, as the others did. And certainly you wouldn't hire somebody at the 11th hour, send them into the harvest, pay them for that little bit of time. You would say, we're going to continue harvesting tomorrow, so be at my field first thing in the morning. But he sends them out to the field. He's hired them about the 11th hour. They get to the field sometime after the vineyard, sometimes after the 11th hour, 10 minutes. I'm assuming 
this is an assumption, but I'm assuming that the marketplace was right, not right up against the vineyard, that it would have been a five or 10 or 15 minute walk. And then the landowner follows on their heels. Not long after he arrives, the sun goes down. He announces that the workday has ended. He instructs his foreman to pay the workers. We're going to pay the last ones first. When those hired about the, the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, again, that was more than a, a, an unskilled labor would make for a day, and they've made that for less than an hour's work. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty generous. When those hired first come, they suppose they're going to receive the same amount. Jesus doesn't bother to tell us what happened with the third and the sixth and the, and the ninth hour men. I've heard pastors preach on the third and the sixth and the ninth hour men. It's like there's, there's nothing said to us about the third and the sixth and the ninth hour men. We have the first hour men. We have the last hour men. The first hour men come, and they suppose that they'll receive more. Why? Because the last hour men received a denarius. If they received a denarius, certainly we would receive more than a denarius. They're paid a denarius, and that causes them to grumble. That's not fair. These men only worked one hour. You've made them equal to us, and we've borne the work, and we've been out here under the scorching sun. Thursday night at the jail, I went through this. And every one of those men agreed with these first-hour men. Well, that's not fair. It's interesting that we can hear ourselves in those first-hour men. We agree with them. That's not fair. We ignore the fact that the landowner is going to bring up you, 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 we negotiated this. We have a contract. Why are you complaining about that? We, we ignore that. And they become convinced that the landowner is mistreating them. They, they'd had a great job for the day, but now it's become an unjust thing. What they wanted, what we so often want, is what's fair. What's fair? What's right? Of course, we get to determine what's right. We want what's just, and that's according to our rules, our guidelines. We tend to think almost entirely in terms of, of wages. What I mean by that is certainly when you do hourly work, you expect to receive the promised wages. But in school, you work hard, you deserve an A. If you did the project properly if you met the standards you deserve an a uh, we do this in uh, in relationships i've been faithful i've been reliable i expect some consideration for that it's a trade it's a job and however we define the wage we want the wage now god created us to be productive he created us to do a thing and to have have a, a product from that to have a result from that but our sinful nature takes that expectation and twists it and makes it ungodly. And that's one of the reasons that the 10th commandment is necessary. You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, 
slaves, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's not that it's wrong to look at your neighbor's house and say, I like that. I like what they've done with that. I, I love that our, our neighbors have built this, this beautiful deck, curving deck. It's just absolutely gorgeous. I've never done that. It'd be nice to have that. I just don't want to make it. I don't want to build it. It'd be a thousand trips to Menards and it'd be seven years and I'd never get it done. So I just don't do that. He had the ability to do that. That's not coveting. Coveting is saying, why should he get that? I should have that. It's not right that he has that. I deserve that. The first hour men wanted justice, which meant they didn't want the last hour men to receive grace. Somehow, if the last hour men received something different, it meant that they weren't being treated justly. So parenthetically, this is not what this, this is about, but parenthetically, in our time right now, our, our culture has shifted from the idea of equity to the idea of equal outcome. Everybody should have the same opportunity, but not everybody gets the same outcome. Not everybody gets the same result from what they do. That's simply the way our world works. Equity means you have the same opportunities. What you do with that opportunity is up to you. Equality of outcome means it doesn't matter how much I put in or invested or how much I devoted, I should get what you got. And it's not fair if I don't. We would say that's wrong. But you see how instinctively we go to that when it's somebody else receiving the blessing. Another thing to consider here, and I think that this does arise out of thinking about the parable. If God has to treat us all the same and guarantee us all the same outcome, then God is not free. God is not free. God is being bound by rules that we impose on him. Instead, God here, in, the, in the, the, the character of the landlord, exercises mercy. So the landlord has a response. He answered and said to one of them, he picks one of them out, he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm not doing you any wrong. I love the word friend. It means comrade or companion or partner. He, he, he speaks to him as an equal. He doesn't speak to him as a minion or a peon or a peasant. He doesn't speak to him as, as just brute labor. He's trying to reason with him as an equal. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one denarius? That's what you've been paid. Didn't you agree to that? Isn't that what you wanted? I've given you what you wanted. Take what is yours and go. Not take what is yours and leave. Take what is yours and be happy. Be content with it. You've made more than you would have made from somebody else. Be well. It's yours. You've earned it. Why are you allowing what somebody else gets to, to ruin everything? And the landowner here is behaving biblically. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul's quoting the Old Testament there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, here's the thing. That's the law in a nutshell. You get what you earn. You get what you earn. That was true for the blessings of the law. It was true for the curses of the law. 
Moses says to the second generation of Israel before they cross into the promised land, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you today. And a curse if you do not listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by walking after other gods which you have not known. Moses says to the people, there's a wage. The blessings are a wage. The curses are a wage. How you work will determine which wage you receive. If you obey God, you'll earn blessing, and he will be faithful to bless you. If you disobey God, you will earn his curses, and he will be faithful to curse you. God will pay you what you deserve. Why? Because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, by the time the first century rolls around, it's, it's become obvious that no one ever earned the blessings. They only earned the curses. In part, that's because the law is pass-fail. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of the whole thing. If, if we all had to go to the Lord with our sins and start negotiating what we had done right and what we'd done absolutely wrong and what we'd been mistaken on and what we were accidental on and what we were deceived on, it would take all eternity. So the Lord has done us the favor of making it very simple. If you've broken even one point of the law, you're a lawbreaker. That's what's stamped on your record, lawbreaker. The specific punishment that you receive in eternity will be based on how you broke it but you will be punished if you're a lawbreaker. Each person receives from God exactly what he or she earns. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we demand that God give us what, we've, what we deserve, we get judgment. That's what we get. That's not what our world believes, because our world believes that, that God is going to, to weigh things or count things up which would be a little bit like being an employee at a company. Uh, it, I'm sure that you've all heard what happened with North Fork Area Transit, that the man that they hired as a general manager um, stole at least three-quarters of a million dollars. They're now shut down until they can get some money. He may have stolen more than that. Can you imagine him stepping up and saying, well, yes, I stole the three-quarters of a million dollars, but I did more good. And our culture saying, oh, okay. No. No. He could have spent 30 years working for them and doing enormous good and then stolen $5,000, and he has to answer for that crime. So it turns out we don't want to be wage earners. We want to be recipients of grace. We don't want what we deserve. We want, we want the blessing we don't deserve. And that's where the conflict kind of continues and, can, and, and keeps 
increasing. On the one hand, we want God to treat us fairly and give us what we deserve. But on the other hand, when we find out that what we deserve is judgment, we don't want that. By that same token, though, God has the same right to receive our worship and our obedience. That's what he deserves. By virtue of him creating all things for his glory, by virtue of him giving us life and consciousness, James says every good gift, every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no shifting of shadow. He never changes. So it doesn't matter who you are, you've, you've received life, you've received every opportunity to worship God. He deserves that. We want to deny him that. So on the one hand, we want God to treat us fairly and give us what we deserve. On the other hand, we want God to give us what we have not earned or deserve. If that's the case, then and we really believe that we would stop talking about what's fair and start talking about what's gracious and we would not begrudge him showing mercy to another. Historically, the, the people of Israel had received the old covenant and I, I think that this is where the, the heart of what Jesus is saying lies. The people of Israel had received the old covenant. They'd received the law. They had negotiated a wage. Paul says and asks a question and answers it in Romans 3. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? He says great in every respect. First of all, or primarily, mainly, that, that they received the oracles of God. The, the people of Israel received the oracles of God. They received the prophets. They were hired first. They were the first hires. God made a covenant with those people. And they said, we will do that. And then they didn't. Life under the law was strenuous. Beyond any question, it was strenuous. At the first church council in Acts 15, Peter calls the law a yoke, which we, neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. As he argues that the Gentiles should not be put under that yoke. So Israel is the first hour man, the Gentiles are the last hour man. We had no promise. We had no oracles from God. We had no prophets. We stood around all day for thousands of years without, without a God. So we just made up our own. Let, let's, let's not pretend that it's either Yahweh comes and hires you or Baal comes and hires you or Allah comes and hires you. There are no gods but God. So the marketplace is full of people who say, well, no, I've got a God. And it's a God of their own creation. And then the Lord came to us and granted us grace in Christ. And Paul says in Romans 11, what then? What Israel is seeking, what they're working for, they have not obtained. But the chosen, that is the elect, both Jews and Gentiles obtained it. And the rest, whether Jew or Gentile, were hardened. In Galatians 3, 
Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And you have to think about what you're reading and hearing. Paul said, the blessing of Abraham in Christ has come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We who? Paul's not a Gentile. And it's because the people of Israel as first hour men were receiving the curse. They were receiving the judgment of God for their works. And Jews and Gentiles alike need the grace of God. There's some application with this that can be made in different ways. Certainly one of those would be looking at when somebody comes to Christ. There are people who come to Christ very young in life. The power of the Spirit is, is shown in him keeping them and preserving them and maturing them over years. And they have decades. They have all of their lives to live for him and to grow in him. And then there are people, I, I did a funeral one time for a man who'd come to Christ two weeks before he died of cancer. That's almost thief on the cross close. There's just no time to do anything. So when that person who came to Christ at four or five or six years old and was raised in a Christian home and has walked with the Lord their whole lives, when they come to, to the Lord as first hour men, and that man I buried who'd come to Christ two weeks before he died or the thief on the cross comes as the last hour men, do the first hour men say, well, it's not fair. That he should receive what I got. Or do they say, praise God for the generosity of God. Because if I received what I deserved, there'd be no hope. I praise God for those who come to Christ young truly do but I, I praise Christ or praise the Lord I do praise Christ for those who come in the 11th hour who come at 11 hours and 59 minutes into the end of their day where this certainly has application for us as those who trust in and believe in and count on the grace of God and the mercy of God it's very easy for us to start asking ourselves, am I really saved? Have I done the right things? And there's, there's a nuance to that question. If you've been born again in Jesus Christ, good works will emerge from your life. It's what the Spirit of God will do. They'll be a different in measure perhaps than others, but there will be things there that you do. But we don't typically say, I love Jesus with all my heart. I trust him with every fiber of my being. And out of that, I want there to be more good works. What we do is we say, I look at my life and I don't see very many good works. I wonder if I'm saved. And all of a sudden we start worrying about the wage. Instead of abandoning that thinking and saying, Lord, I've come in the 11th hour. Nobody would hire me. Nobody would choose me. 
but you simply, Paul makes the comment in 1 Timothy, he put me into service. The first men negotiated a wage. The third and sixth and ninth hour, he said, I'll give you what's fair. He says nothing to the eleventh hour men. They just have to trust him. That's what we've done. That's what we've done. And I want you to be a, have the kind of peace that comes from resting in him. If, if you've never actually trusted him, then you need to do that. But if you have, then you can be assured of his love and his faithfulness and his kindness. And he's faithful as you grow to bring you along, to reveal issues in your life that need to be repented of, to grow you up. He won't stop doing that, not as a sign of judgment, but as a measure of his love. And you can have peace with God. That's the message then that we want to take to our world, that they can have peace with God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the, the ministry and the life and the teaching of, and works of the Lord Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that that would have a full application in our lives. That we would understand that we are all 11th hour people. That were it not for your willingness to come and find us, were it not for your willingness to bless us, were it not for your generosity and your grace and your mercy, we would have nothing. We would have no hope. But instead, you've taken us as 11th hour people and you've made us co-heirs with your son, which is beyond our ability to grasp. We give you thanks for that. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask that you would bless them, comfort them, and exhort them. And Lord, send us with the confidence of our Savior, full of the gospel. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.